0: They dragged her out, and it reminded me of deer hunting, you drag out of a deer carcass. Hey!
1: We need more He was completely out of control. He himself was committing crimes in the process. There's people from all over the nation, from every state. There
2: has been a lot of fraud. He could stop this. At least one person over here is being injured and taken
1: Capitol away. Capitol Hill, overtaken
3: by America. The story of January 6 changes drastically depending on who's telling it. The House Select Committee on January 6 has deemed the incident an attack on the American system comparable to the bombing of Pearl Harbor or even the terrorist attacks on 9-11. It's being investigated as a potential insurrection that could allegedly incriminate former President Donald Trump. And it's being used domestically frame a new narrative on domestic extremism. Yet is this narrative really the case?
4: Imagine if the American people actually saw just what happened to Roseanne Boylan and these officers who keep portraying themselves as heroes that day.
0: He fires at her
1: and strikes her in the left shoulder. It's a failure not only of training, but it's also a failure of bystandership and supervision.
3: January 6th demands a full and impartial investigation, one free from foregone conclusions, hidden agendas, and naked hyperbole. The nation needs a serious examination of January 6th, one that includes the subjects too often ignored in media coverage and in political speech. With interviews, on the ground reporting, and exclusive footage, we'll now tell the real
1: story of January 6th.
3: Yeah, we're on the ellipse now. We'll meet you soon. Good stuff. Thank you. To begin this investigation, I sat down with Joe Hanneman, the lead reporter on January 6th at the Epic Times, to review our footage.
0: January 6th started out as a protest uh, a large gathering to hear President Trump speak about his concerns and his charges that there was widespread fraud of the presidential election. The people came in very large numbers to the ellipse in Washington, D.C. to hear his speech. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Stop the steal. His speech ran long or his appearance went overtime. and I think that caused some issues over at the Capitol because there were people gathered over there who were already in the process of breaching some of the security lines before the President had stopped speaking. So the people that were encouraged to go to the Capitol peacefully and made their voices heard were largely still over listening to the President when some of these uh, unusual things happens on the Capitol grounds. It really goes to the heart of other unusual happenings that day. The role of suspicious actors in various places around the Capitol, and all of which lead you to the conclusion that a deeper look is needed to really define that, what January 6th is, because we're still trying to define it.
3: People are talking about violence on January 6th. How did the police factor into this? I mean, who was really instigating things? Which
0: side? Well, there was plenty of police uh, provocation. The initial use of explosive munitions that day That started at about 1.25 in the afternoon where the police launched explosives into the crowd which was pretty much just milling there and standing and these were very loud deafening and some of them had projectiles uh, hard plastic pellets that rained down and uh, some had tear gas in them but when they landed in the middle that caused injuries, and they got a very angry response. That was a large crowd. From what I saw, there was quite a few older people in that crowd, and they fired munitions even far to the back. People that wouldn't have known what was going on up front. So this created an atmosphere that I think percolated through the rest of the day. And they continued firing into this crowd for well over an hour using those, what I would call, heavy munitions. So I don't know what their strategy was in using munitions. which. Uh, They had said they were not going to use the less-than-lethal force munitions and things like that on January 6th.
3: Were the actions of the Capitol Police out of line? Were there violations in use of force? And what are the legalities of this? We spoke with Stan Keffard, one of the nation's top experts on police use of force and one of the top-rated expert witnesses in court cases on crowd control. Kefrod has 42 years of law enforcement experience, including as security director for the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. He served as an officer, detective, undersheriff, and chief of police at jurisdictions in Arizona, California, and Missouri. He has testified more than 350 times in federal, state, and tribal courts.
1: Supervisory failure. frontline supervisor, a sergeant, or whoever's in control, a lieutenant, should have put those people in posted positions or in a skirmish line or in a defense posture, put them between the objective that they were protecting and the crowd. That wasn't being done. That was a shooting gallery up there, a congregation of officers. I didn't see a supervisor among them who were using these munitions to inflict harm Uh, an injury on people below them. It's egregious. Rubber bullets have the potential to put an eye out. Shooting down into a crowd at the head level, which is the first primary target that would be hit by those rubber bullets, runs the risk of having somebody's eye put out or having them permanently disfigured. Impact front on from ground level is designed to hit somebody in the chest or lower so that it will sting and put them In flight. That is the design and purpose of the tool.
0: These are people who largely support long order, back to blue. So they did not understand why they were being fired upon. These were throughout the crowd, so there was definitely a stirring the pot effect, and, and eventually it, it did come to a boil in certain areas. Oh, oh. Oh. The protester was climbing the wall. He had seen somebody put a giant American flag up on the scaffolding for inauguration, and he wanted to put his Trump flag up. He scaled the wall, and when he got up there, He didn't have a chance to put the flag up. A Couple officers took swipes at him over the rail and missed him, but then he actually got into a standing position and a motorcycle police officer from Capitol Police came up with a pretty good stride and shoved him and he fell at least 20 feet and was seriously injured. That was witnessed by a lot of people. And then when they carried him out, a lot of the crowd saw the after effects of that and they were very upset. My
1: analysis of a police officer pushing somebody off the wall is that that individual is committing a crime, a very serious crime, again, putting that person's life at risk. It is unconscionable for an officer to do such a thing. The officer is required to take that person off the wall, strip cuff them, Take them into custody and arrest them.
3: What is happening here? Why is this officer behaving like this? And his behavior seems to be a lot different from the other officers.
0: He stood out to us because of. Uh, he Almost in a manic state. He was looking for more munitions. He had used his up, and so he was going to fellow officers and grabbing their munitions, whether it was a taser cartridge or it was uh, one of the grenades that they use with the, the hard plastic pellets.
1: Hey! We, f-
0: we did not see that from other officers, where it was, and as soon as he got one, he'd pull the pin and he would lob it into the crowd, and you'd hear it explode. Where do you want it? Right here? Yeah. He I was completely
1: more. out of control. A supervisor should have stopped him, got him out of that area, and he himself was committing crimes in the process.
5: Three ECD deployments, I got another
1: taser. If you tase somebody, you're obligated to cuff them, now that you've neutralized them, arrest them, and that's not what he was doing. He was using those devices to punish people, not to arrest them, and that is unconscionable.
2: Hey, Rich. Yeah.
1: It's a failure not only of training, but it's also a failure of bystandership and supervision. An officer who is placed at risk of being injured or killed because of the action of another officer who precipitated a circumstance that began to be dangerous because he wanted to arrest a person, uh, has a stake in that and would go to the officer and say, I'm gonna report you to the sergeant. I don't appreciate that. You put us at risk because of what you were doing. I'm upset with you. But munitions come basically in two types. There are burning grenades and there are blast dispersion grenades. This appears to be blast dispersion, which caught fire. And if you fire them at an individual rather than hitting the ground close to them, you run the risk of incurring injury to that individual that you're trying to A, disperse, or B, ar- immobilize so you can arrest. Hey! If you do, that explosion at a face level could blind a person, it could deafen them for life, it could do both. And that was what was depicted here in this film script. There is no tactical reason at all. This is something that is, you're showing intent by shooting at that level. It was also evident to me that the crowd was angry. The one-finger salute that was being given by that activist was a clear indication that they were mad. So what you've done is you've constructively created a problem that you started out to disperse or arrest people with. You have uh, contradicted what your mission was in the first instance, which was to disperse that crowd, get them back. Because the chemical munitions were having effect on them, uh, and not to uh, do something that is um, in my mind, sadistic
0: and um, wrong, just wrong.
3: Do we know anything about this incident but the bomb goes off in the crowd that this officer threw?
0: Well, I'm not sure that particular grenade, uh, if we know what the result was, but others, they fell in amidst two gentlemen who fairly shortly after had cardiac events one i believe was a stroke the other was a heart attack that loud of a retort in i don't certainly can't say that that medically triggered it but a stimulus like that to anybody that's got a bad heart those fellows both dropped pretty quickly and they were carried out and both of them eventually died You may have a person who has a condition that could evoke a
1: reaction on their part that would be detrimental to their health. I'm not going to say that that's what happened here. I'm not a medical expert. I don't know. But I think it more probable than not that this precipitated what happened. The closer the density of the crowd, the more problematic the use of these tools is in terms of a number of things there have been panic reactions on compacted crowds resulted in trampling deaths and injuries uh, that occur. It's designed to get people to disperse, but in doing it with a compacted crowd, there isn't really that much maneuverability to disperse. And so it is a consideration that the commander uh, should review before using this type of grenade. And if he determines that that is a danger because of the compacted nature of the crowd, a burning uh, dispersion grenade would be a better tool because the gas is coming it's not an explosion that causes the micro pulverized
0: uh, particles to be embedded in people. One of them may have been struck by a projectile a witness did report that was struck in the side of the head but they were in very close proximity so they would have certainly felt the concussion they may have even felt the heat uh, and certainly uh, any of the gas that came off of it. And the response was very quick. I mean, within a few seconds, the first fellow was down and he was without a pulse, and they never did bring him back. The autopsy uh, ruled it as a natural death because the, the, these fellows had history of, of heart disease, but it did not go into contributing factors. And, you know, the families were not surprised about the heart attack because of the health conditions, but you cannot ignore the timing. Again, it raises troubling questions that, that really haven't been answered. So the police are pushing people over this barricade and they were moving people back, but they were on a, somewhat of an elevated platform and we were pushing them pretty violently and there was a concrete barrier and they, several of these guys got flipped over. They were pushed so hard and they tumbled. It wasn't a large height, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were injuries. It kind of shocks the census to see it because this wasn't uh, just calmly shoving people back with riot shields or whatever, these, these were uh, well, it kind of looked like a bar fight. It's very disorganized, as you can see, that they're, they're throwing punches, they're striking people with batons, and even who, one... Did gonna they do grab it, someone? Who did they grab? Here? That's, the, that's the fellow who was tased.
1: And he so was,
3: they, they tased this guy and dragged him, and him in? And then
1: dragged
0: him in, yep. What's
1: depicted here is a police mob confronting a mob and fighting with them using techniques And tactics that they're not authorized to use that they were not taught and trained to use Uh, their policies and procedures of any agency that i'm aware of does not include such thing as doing a front snap kick to an individual that you've chased away from the area that was responded to later by the crowd doing the same tactic a front snap kick to the officers you've created a one-on-one Contest. This is not a karate match. This is a situation where you're obligated and duty-bound to disperse the crowd and to move them back or arrest those who stay there. That's not what was done.
3: There was a severe beating of a woman named Victoria White. What do we know about her case?
0: Victoria White from uh, Rochester, Minnesota, uh, with the crowd, had come up to the, the tunnel entrance, and she says she had been pushed in by the momentum of the crowd and she ended up being trapped against one of the walls. And fairly short time after she got in there, she was attacked by a police officer, a supervisor from the Metro DC Police Department. And it went on for maybe five minutes. She was struck nearly 40 times in the head and face.
6: When the first blow came to my head by a metal baton, it was really bad. And I remember trying to keep myself up um, because I was scared. I would be trampled. Originally I thought I'd just got hit like three times on the head, but it wasn't until I saw the video that I realized like how bad it was getting in the tunnel. I remember trying to keep myself up because I was scared I was gonna be trampled. And I remember saying to the officer, you took an oath to the constitution and he called me the B word. And that's when I got one of the hardest blows that I can remember.
1: The head is a sphere and what happens when you strike a spherical object with a blunted object at least resistance and glances off the head. That's a possibility. The second thing is you can hit them flush and kill them. If your intent was to kill them you should have been using a firearm not a baton. So it fails tactically to use a baton to attempt to use it as a disabling force option. The baton is registered as a less than lethal tool. It is a tool like tear gas, it is a tool like the taser, it is a tool like using your hands to subdue the person so that you can handcuff them and take them into custody. An officer striking her with an overhand blow approximately 10 times to her body, which she was protecting herself by putting her hands
0: up to avoid the blows. Clearly a defensive position, not an attack position. She was also punched in the face with a closed fist by the same officer, I believe it was five times. She suffered a fairly severe beating, and the, the video is, is pretty graphic. They were taking her back through the tunnel to detain her. Um, so it was near the doors, the entrance to the Capitol. She is in the midst of a circle of police, and she's kind of getting jostled back and forth.
6: I know at some point, my shoes started to come off and I was falling backwards and my coat around my waist slipped down and then I I don't know and then I know at one point I felt like I was falling backwards then being pushed between officers like ping-ponged they had my hands behind my back I didn't have my shoes I just had my socks when they took me in there's no words to express the way that I feel right now. And um, the atrocities that are have gone on, the fact that we're labeled as terrorists. We're labeled as racist. I am a mom of four mixed daughters. I love all people. People's lies about us are causing myself and other January Sixers to endure unspeakable hell and justice for us, it it, it seems almost impossible.
3: Phrases that would populate news sites all day and for months to come were repeated in near uniform. Stormed the Capitol, breached police lines, insurrectionists, treason. Homogenous coverage came in real-time dispatches from the Capitol, but at the same time, rally-goers had trouble making calls or sending texts to the grounds all day. January 6th was a display of grievance on behalf of a large swath of American society. That such an aggressive slice of the political world pushed these terms relentlessly raises the first somewhat rhetorical question of why. Julie Kelly, political commentator and senior contributor to American Greatness, has been one of the leading journalists on this topic.
4: It's all by design. And the idea that there are still people who believe, especially people on the right who somehow still believe, that the events of January 6th were organic. It was this uprising incited by Donald Trump's speech that day at the Ellipse. They're burying their head in the sand. So it's almost like a child. If no one is punished, no one pays any consequences for the biggest fraud perpetrated on the American people until January 6th, the Russia collusion hoax. Because they all got away with it, they were emboldened. And so that is what propelled them to then hijack the 2020 presidential election and then figure out a way after that, how to bury and criminalize criticism of the 2020 election to finish off Donald Trump and the entire MAGA movement, which was the purpose of this inside job of January 6th. And so unfortunately, here we are, no one still has been held criminally responsible for Russiagate. And now we see the same interests dovetailing who coalesced behind the events of January 6th. What I think they're trying to do is take those two groups um, and tie them to Donald Trump. The Oath Keepers who provided security for Roger Stone on January 5th, that'll kind of be, in my view, the way to get to Trump through the Oath Keepers. The Proud Boys, obviously, when Trump was led into saying, stand back and stand by Proud Boys in that uh, 2020 debate, they're gonna describe that as the rallying call to get the Proud Boys to attack the Capitol, overthrow democracy. So I think that's where uh, they're headed, but that's right. This has always been about Trump, right? Well, it definitely is. It has nothing to do with January 6th, and this is why I think a lot of Americans are tuning it out, because they have not asked the hard questions. Why was the Capitol intentionally unsecure that day? Why did Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, Sergeant at Arms, the people who are responsible for securing the Capitol, not Donald Trump, the Capitol Police Board, which uh, included those two men, Paul Ernie and Michael Stanger. Why did they repeatedly reject pleas from Steven Sund, the ex-Capital Police Chief, for extra help that day? Even as the chaos unfolded on January 6th, they still denied um, deploying the National Guardsmen, which of course Trump had already offered. In December, I think I said it was a setup. Um, I think now I describe it as an inside job. Um, because it's the same interests who brought us Russiagate and everything since then, who conspired behind the scenes to execute the events of January 6th and now to uh, reap all of the political benefits that we've seen ever since. 18 months of nonstop fixation, um, the criminalization of political dissent, and it attempt to finally drive a stake in the heart of the MAGA movement. This stuff does not happen by accident in Washington, D.C. So that's basically how I describe uh, January 6 to uh, to anyone who wants to know exactly what the truth is and that is uh, the truth that I believe. If the media and if the
6: FBI and the DOJ in my documents like the indictment or um, whatever my charges are, whatever. They make me out to be the aggressor. It's clearly not me, but the officers in that tunnel that were the aggressor. And if they can say, take a picture, for instance, a, a screenshot, a video, and say that, oh, look, she's trying to grab onto the shield. I was trying to hold myself up. And if they can say, oh look, she's hitting the officer or trying to pull him down or whatever they said. And yet I'm telling it to stop spraying me in my face. It just stopped. But they want to turn all that, like I'm out to get them. Like I'm out to, to beat the police. In all that beating, all of that, I, I did not punch an officer. I didn't fight back against the police who who abused me. And if they can lie about me, I know for a fact that they can lie about everybody else that was there that day.
3: Before the smoke of tear gas had cleared the Capitol, The decision was made at the highest levels of government to hunt down everyone who was at the Capitol on January 6. The FBI and the Department of Justice began rounding up suspects the very next day in the most far-flung investigation of its kind. Many suspects experienced the full SWAT treatment as federal tactical teams in armored vehicles prowled through suburban neighborhoods. Front doors were blown off and flashbangs tossed inside. Family members were greeted with the laser sights of M4 carbines, trained on their bodies. Even children were handcuffed as agents sorted out who was who. Some 850 people have been arrested for primarily misdemeanor charges, such as entering and remaining in a restricted building, and even parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a Capitol building. Some defendants were denied bail and still sit behind bars. To be charged even with trespassing meant being shunned by the community as traitors or insurrectionists. Some were fired for their jobs, based only on allegations. For one of the defendants, Matthew Perna, the pressure was too much. He pled guilty to a felony charge of obstructing Congress, and also misdemeanor charges. For these, he was facing over 20 years in prison, and he decided to end his own life. His aunt, Jerry Perna, said the charges that led to his death were unjustified.
7: The way they're going after people is absolutely insane. And then on the other hand, on the other side of the coin, you have people committing crimes, blatantly robbing and looting stores in California and places, and they're not even being arrested you can steal up to $900 and not even be arrested. But you can't walk into the Capitol, the people's house, with police saying, come on in. Nothing about this is normal. I don't put anything past them at this point. I don't. Um, they're out for blood and they're getting it. They appear to be winning. I believe with Matt and with many other of the j Sixers, I believe that this DOJ jumped the gun on these felony charges with many of them and I believe they just randomly passed these charges out and then decided to look for the evidence and in Matt's case and so many others they simply didn't have the evidence but it was a roller coaster of emotion from that point on constant and he was watching the other cases and how they were pleading comparing his case to their case every time he had a hearing it was delayed He would gear himself up mentally, prepare himself, and they would delay it. Sometimes they would tell him when it would be, sometimes it was indefinitely delayed. Or it was um, discovery. They don't have enough, you know, they're still going through the discovery process. And that was mentally exhausting for him. It contributed immensely to Matt's suicide. It did. Um, it was a head game that they were playing with him. They're playing it with the rest of the J6ers. They're playing head games and, and, and it's working. Matt was a very kind-hearted person. He had a smile that would light up a room. He was very thoughtful. He loved talking to people that was a gift of his he could sit down with a stranger in a coffee shop and just start having a conversation with them and he loved learning about their lives and where they were from and how they grew up especially the elderly with people by the end of the conversation he had made a new friend and matt didn't just make friends casually he kept these people in his life he had thousands of friends matt wrote beautiful paragraphs on every postcard talking about life and how he was enjoying his surroundings. And he sent probably thousands in his lifetime. There's no getting past this and there's nothing anybody could say that's gonna make it any better. We miss him so much. And we will forever be heartbroken.
3: Many of the defendants from January 6 are still awaiting trial, and many have been held in continuous solitary confinement, a form of incarceration deemed by the ACLU as a human rights abuse. Epic Times reporter and host of Facts Matter, Roman Balmakov, spoke with January 6 prisoner, Jake Lang over the phone to learn about their conditions.
5: I'm in solitary confinement over here. So in DC and in Alexandria, I've been in solitary confinement. Um, Right now, I'm in administrative segregation, it's called, and uh, they won't let me go to general population um, because they want to torture me into trying to take some kind of uh, decade-long plea deal. Uh, 108 months is the most recent plea deal I was offered, a decade in prison for defending, saving lives and defending the Constitution. It's cruel and unusual punishment, and it's uh, specifically um, because they want to send a signal out to the rest of the Americans. If you ever dare to stand... um, for your constitution and for your civil liberties that we will call you domestic terrorists, we'll drag you away from your home and your family and your community, we'll put you in deplorable conditions, um, torture you into uh, ridiculous plea deals, and meanwhile, drag your name through the mud throughout all mainstream media and call you white supremacist. And all these domestic terrorists and violent insurrectionists and all this ridiculous nonsense, um, they're using us to uh, punish uh, pre-punish us before trial and to send a signal out to the American people that um, any resistance uh, that you have to tyranny will be treated as, uh, as I'm being treated right now. And so um, that's why I believe that they're torturing us um, January 6th.
3: Were the FBI raids warranted? Is it justified that many defendants have been held in solitary confinement while awaiting trial? Are the long prison sentences mainly for non-violent crimes reasonable? This would depend on what actually took place, and just how much of a threat the crowd actually was. Now on the Trump side, we do know there was some violence. How significant
0: was the violence on the Trump side? Well, it certainly can't be denied. Some of the locales where there was some instigation, but uh, there was clearly enough trouble from Trump supporters. Uh, because it's caught on security video where th- things were hurled at the police. Pieces of furniture, a 16-foot aluminum ladder was they tried to use as a battering ram. Where does a 16-foot aluminum ladder come from on the Capitol grounds during a protest? Uh, never quite figured that one out. You saw mops and whisk brooms and uh office desk drawers, uh, large plastic garbage cans, and a, a stereo speaker, a fairly heavy one, hurled in at the police. We do know that normal normal riots often have
3: projectiles thrown. We've seen BLM and Antifa riots with firebombs, Molotov cocktails, you know, of course, bricks, other objects like that. Was there anything that severe at this protest?
0: There were no incendiaries thrown. Uh, they did uh, arrest a fellow who had brought Molotov cocktails up within a block of the Capitol, but then didn't do anything with them.
3: So of all the Trump supporters, I mean, what was the worst thing that we saw of violence on behalf of the Trump side?
0: There was a line of police uh, that were below a concrete barrier and they were climbing over. The police were moving out and climbing over. And uh, a man at least wearing Trump's gear, I believe was a Trump supporter, he took a running start and put his shoulder into the back of this police officer with full force and the police officer went head over heels and landed. I think he was caught by his colleagues who were down below but it it was I'm sure that could have caused an injury, and the video is quite shocking. So that was clearly just wanton violence. This was not a reaction to anything. It's very clear. You can see he stops, seems to be making a conscious decision, and then wasn't a sprint, but it was a pretty good gallop before he made contact.
3: Now aside from him, were actions like what this individual carried out, were they representative of the rest of the crowd? Was anything like that common?
0: no i don't believe so i think your typical uh, rally goer that day even the ones that went over to the capitol uh, were more curious than anything now certainly enough of them got riled up when you're you're having projectiles fired into your midst but that particular incident you did not see a large number of those things uh, and i believe they have they have arrested all of the people because it's pretty pretty easy to spot because when those things are done uh, on video so uh, but i think overall it was a a small percentage of the people that were there which is why you were hearing people saying i was there and i didn't i didn't see any of this stuff
3: of course violence on january 6 was not limited to just fighting and riot control in the aftermath of january 6 Four police officers who were present that day committed suicide. Yet there were also people who died that day. After the incidents on January 6th, one of the first stories that a lot of the media were reporting was this Officer Sicknick, they reported, had been beaten to death by protesters using, I believe, a fire extinguisher. What was the real story with Officer Sicknick?
0: Well, the real story is his death was ruled by the medical examiner. Uh, as from natural causes. that uh, He had a stroke and um, there was no fire extinguisher thrown at his head, but we continue to hear this used even in prosecutions and our own president uh, over this you know, recent weekend at a commencement said the rioters killed two police on january sixth
3: they 're saying two police now who, who is the other police officer
0: we 'd have to ask him it. Uh, But these things just keep being repeated. We've even seen this brought up in court hearings, and a couple times we've had defense attorneys speak up and say, whoa, wait a minute, that's not true. Uh, Four people died January 6th. They were all Trump supporters. Officer Sicknick died the next day, and his case um, was not a result of being struck with any object.
3: So just to review then, five deaths total, from January 6th. Officer Sicknick appeared to die afterwards from health complications. We know Ashley Babbitt was shot and killed. Roseanne Boyland appeared to have died during the incident, although it was ruled as amphetamines. And then two individuals who had heart attacks or strokes. Uh, It appears that it was triggered very likely by munitions that officers had used against them.
0: It certainly could have been. I mean, they were close enough that, that that would be a concern.
4: The worst thing that happened that day was the execution of Ashley Babbitt at near point-blank range by Lieutenant Michael Byrd, who was exonerated in any alleged investigation, and the deaths of three other Trump supporters, Benjamin Phillips, Kevin Greeson, and Roseanne Boylan, who died, all three of them, very likely due to excessive police force that day. That's another thing the January 6th Committee and the DOJ are completely burying, so to speak.
0: U.S. Capitol Police Lieutenant Michael Byrd who was off to Ashley's left when she climbed into the window. And he was fairly tight into the wall. Would have been difficult to see that he was there. And he has spoken publicly that he warned her, you know, he yelled at her to stop. You cannot hear that on any of the audio. It would be arguably very difficult because the the crowd noise coming from that hallway, it was a din, it was very loud. But he had his gun trained on her as soon as he appears in the frame in the video. You know, it's not just, is drawn and he's in shooting stance. And then he advances forward and lunges, and then he fires at her and strikes her in the in the left shoulder. In the speaker's lobby, which is a fairly large space with marble columns, behind one of the columns, it was probably 15, 20 feet uh, from where Lieutenant Byrd was, there was another officer who at almost the same instant as Lieutenant Byrd, drew his weapon into firing position. So he had trained on Ashley Babbitt coming through the window. Uh, it did not fire as far as we know. You know, it, The video was shot through cracked glass, so it's very difficult to, to get complete details, but it's very clear. He raises his weapon into firing position, and then Lieutenant Byrd fires quite shortly after that. And as far as we know, then he he drew down and did not did not fire, but there was a second officer by the stance he took, prepared to fire on her. It's hard to approximate the distance,
1: but it would appear to be some eight to 10 feet away from where she was coming through the window, at which time uh, Lieutenant Byrd produced his Glock firearm and fired once without a safe backdrop because there were officers behind her and other innocent persons behind her striking her whereupon she fell to the floor mortally wounded lieutenant did not go forward and handcuff Ashley Babbitt and administer first aid Uh, he withdrew he's out of the picture there was an additional officer who withdrew his weapon Again, pointing it in a direction that was not a safe backdrop, but did not fire. So there's a discrepancy between the need of the lieutenant to fire when another officer didn't fire with the same circumstances. In order for lethal force to be authorized, the officer must be able to articulate that he or she was in fear of losing his life, was about to be killed or grievously injured There is nothing I saw in that film that would indicate that that was possible or probable uh, from what unfolded. Uh, Lastly, I am not aware of any firearms discharge report being written and I'm not aware of any conclusion that stated uh, that he was exonerated based on uh, a thorough internal affairs investigation including the Graham v. Connor litmus test. The first thing that would happen immediately upon uh, a discharge of firearms would be, as I said, this now is a crime scene. And the lieutenant should have closed on the person that he shot, handcuffed that individual to prevent recovery and necessitating a weapon. Next thing, apply first aid. And immediately that area should have been taped off, sealed off. It becomes a crime scene and should await the response of a crime scene investigation unit who would photograph the positions, the measurements, the forensics involved with the discharge of the firearm. A subsequent uh, discharge of firearms report would be required to be written by uh, Lieutenant Byrd. He would be placed on administrative leave with pay. His badge and ID card and firearm would be taken uh and an internal affairs investigation would begin investigation is concluded that would go to the office of the chief of police who would make a disposition in the case uh that he he as the um as the chief would have to make i was shocked that the department of justice issued a three paragraph uh response to this horrific event um based on the fact that they included in their language uh, the Graham v. Connor uh, litmus test, which is objective reasonableness. Clearly, from in any way, this was not objectively reasonable. And to use that language in defense of Lieutenant Byrd shows a conscious disregard for the facts as to how they came to that conclusion. Lieutenant Byrd's refusal to be interviewed uh, after requesting his lawyer, which never occurred, he has a duty and a responsibility to be lie the department to lie him, to which requires that he answer their questions in an internal affairs investigation or face termination for refusing to answer. He has no right to withhold an answer. My conclusion was that based on what I saw and observed in the video clip, that Ashley Babbitt was murdered. She was shot and killed under color of authority by an officer who violated not only the law, but his oath and committed an arrestable offense.
4: What happened to Ashley Babbitt um, would not be allowed to happen anywhere else in the country, let alone have the identity, the name of the police officer involved, have his name concealed from the public for months, Um, That just never happens. Another case of the media working with the um, with Congress to protect people uh, who you know are are guilty of a crime.
3: Everyone's seen the video I think where Ashley Babbitt was shot but what's not paid attention to is how she got through this window and exactly what happened and there are these really suspicious individuals. What is suspicious about these individuals in the scene?
0: Well the number of them To begin with, uh, Ashley Babbitt, when she made her way up to the window, she was surrounded by people who fit that definition. In her immediate vicinity surrounding her, there were probably three or four. Three or four suspicious actors and 20 suspicious actors total in that room, in that area and one of them, who was an instigator, Zachary Alam, he was the one bashing the window with, with a black helmet and he knocked out several window panes and Ashley Babbitt kinda had a running spar with him. She was screaming at him to stop. She stepped forward and she punched him in the face.
3: Ashley Babbitt tried to stop this individual then, you're saying?
0: She did. She got after the police officers who were there. Why aren't you stopping this, you know? And, you know, she's been portrayed as a as a rioter, as a seditionist, uh, but it's very clear in the video and the audio that she was uh, very upset and trying to stop what was happening because they were bashing in the glass in the doors that lead to the uh, speaker's lobby and right onto the house floor. And then when she, and her husband is totally convinced that when she does the, the punch to Zachary Alam, she had decided that she needed to escape from that hallway that it had gotten scary, the conditions. The SWAT team was coming up the stairs and she was afraid of crowded places. So she decided, I have to go out of here. When she climbed up in the window, there were two suspicious actors, one on either side of her. We don't have a clear enough video angle to see if either one of them pushed her up into the window or helped her into the window, uh, but they were in that position on either side of her. And then when she was shot and fell back, Again, these same several suspicious actors were right around her when she fell and was laying there. So it raises all sorts of questions. What role did they have? How did they all get there at the same time along with all these other people?
3: Another suspicious point with all this is one of the individuals who breaks this glass is, is communicating with another one. We can watch him in the video. And then as the SWAT team is moving up the stairs, this individual goes back down the stairs
0: and looks like he's changing his clothes. Zachary Alam did that. When he saw Ashley had been shot, he realized it. Uh, you can see on the video he physically responds; he almost jumps back, and the look of horror. He was genuinely terrified. It certainly certainly seemed to be, even though he had created the conditions that led to that uh, by by the violence with the helmet and the, the smashed glass. And he did uh, he did go down the stairs and did not come back up. But there were a number of people on the stairs that we haven't been able to identify and also haven't been charged and who are familiar enough with the police to, to go up to them and say things or pat them on the back. Who they are, we, you know, we still haven't uh, figured out. But for that many unidentified people to be in a space where there was a fatality like that, uh, you know, it, it, it goes to our longer list of, of burning questions.
3: News outlets have tried framing Ashley Babbitt as having not been a peaceful protester and House Democrats have painted her killer as a hero. Yet video evidence tells a very different story of her and of her death. Who was Ashley Babbitt? We met with her husband Aaron Babbitt in San Diego to learn more.
8: Ashley just loved life. She loved herself. Nobody loved Ashley more than her. I mean, she just woke up every day wanting to take on the world and, you know, never had a task that she didn't want to conquer. And the harder it was, the more she wanted to fight for it. She loved her dogs. I mean, we had three dogs. I've lost all three of them since January 6th. It's been a rough 18, 19 months.
3: What happened on January 6th? I understand you were not there. She went. What what was kind of the, what did you hear from her and why she wanted to go?
8: We were sitting on the beach in Cabo. It was Christmas Day. She was looking at her phone and she said, President Trump's having a a speech uh, January 6th. And I really think I want to go, you know, because it might be the last time I get to hear him talk or at least, you know, for another four years. And I kind of shrugged it off, laughed it off, laugh, because you know we had already been on vacation. We shut our business down for two weeks between Christmas and New Year's. And but when Ashley has her mindset on something, she's going to do it. And that's the relationship we had. You know, I was we always wanted the other to do what made them happy.
3: Yeah. So why did why did you decide not to go as well?
8: Uh, I mean, we have a business. I was not political at that point. The Aaron sitting in front of you on January fifth is completely iron different errands sitting in front of you now. Uh, I was just well over politics. That was more her thing. Obviously, I I voted and supported for President Trump, and I will again, but it just wasn't my thing. She was having the best day of her life, and you could see that. She put on a Facebook Live video of her walking down the the inaugural path. on the way to the Capitol, and she specifically says that I just got to see President Trump speak, and I can tell you as big of a fan she was and a supporter, that she would never leave until he was fully out of sight.
3: Now, did you receive any messages from her when she was in the Capitol building? Yeah, I mean, I got a couple texts, but
8: it was just, you know, I'm inside the Capitol and I was looking at like, you what? And I turned my TV on real quick. Everybody was inside the house chamber just going about their own business. And I remember taking a picture of my TV and going, they don't look very concerned. When
3: the news that she was shot came out, what was your reaction? Uh, I watched
8: it live i was i was watching it happen um i had to out here in california we were still heavily locked down for COVID. i had to make a gym uh, reservation and i had a short day that day so i got home at like 11:30 our time um i got a call somewhere just after 12 saying that uh it it was from a person that i really don't talk to i mean him and ashley's wife were really good friends we're we're buddies when we're around each other but that's about it he said that his wife had um, thought that she had seen ashley on tv and looked like she'd been hurt there was something about a door or a window i could hear the tremble in his voice and i hung the phone up I walked outside, you know, out into the living room and I turned my TV on and the very first image I saw was ashes laying on the ground with blood, you know, blood coming out. The room. lights went on. I collapsed. I came to, there was, there were people in my house, um, I knew them, but I don't remember them coming in. And at that point, I mean, my life really just changed forever. I mean, I had to, my phone started ringing and I'm, you know, thinking, hey, I'm getting info now. And it's, hey, this is so-and-so from this TV station in San Diego. I, 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 you're not who I want to talk to. I'm trying to find out what happened to my wife, you know, and I'm, I have to answer these phone calls. I was bound to the same use of force continuum that those police are in D.C. I worked at a security nuclear power plant. I knew the steps. I could spit them out verbatim when I was working there. And so I knew that it was a bad shoot, and I knew immediately, like, hey, something really, really bad just happened from what I saw. But it was probably a span of, like, a month that I was just terrified. I didn't want to watch it again. What I had seen, it just was so traumatic. I didn't want to watch it happen again. But then I'd, like, run into random people that I knew, grown men customers, and they'd just be sobbing on my shoulder, and I'm like, I don't think I've really seen it all in, in its entirety. Uh, so I had to make that jump into um, basically watching and looking at every picture that no husband should ever have to look at. But I had to, because I had to harden my skin, I had to thicken my skin over it. So I got to the point to where I just, I, you know, ripped the band aid off every morning. I'll search Ashley's name on Twitter, I'll read all the bad stuff. I'll, you know, whoever wants to put a picture up, I've already seen it, you know, so it just, I do that and it got me to the point to where nobody can rock me, you know, nobody's going to say it to my face, they're not going to, you know, it's just, that's just
3: how it is. Ashley Babbitt was the only person confirmed to have been killed on January 6th, but another death also has video evidence suggesting that DC Metropolitan Police may have played a role that of Roseanne Boyland.
0: Roseanne Boyland was part of a crowd that had gathered in the tunnel entrance on the Lower West Terrace. It was one of the entrances to the Capitol and the police in trying to drive the people out, unleashed some sort of chemical irritant that appeared to displace the oxygen. The witnesses described the feeling that the oxygen had been sucked out of the air and they couldn't breathe. Because people could not draw a breath in, they very quickly went unconscious. And Roseanne was one of the first to fall. Right at the tunnel entrance, she went down. A number of people who continued to push out landed on top of her. In almost an instant, she was under five or six people deep. There's a duty on the part of police, once they push somebody out
1: of the tunnel, or attempting to push them out of the tunnel, and they fall, to
0: render aid or to get them up and get them out of the tunnel. It's incumbent upon them to do that. The video is quite shocking. It looks like a waterfall going down the steps, leading away from this entrance, people just tumbling out. And at that point, the police were were pushing. They were pushing everyone out after deploying the gas. And so you had a a pile of humanity, and the people at the bottom, of course, were being crushed. And Roseanne was terrified. She was calling out, someone help me, someone help me. And another uh, bystander held her hand while she became unconscious. My assessment
1: of the use of gas in a tunnel, a confined space, is as follows. The objective of the use of gas is to disperse or to arrest those who fail to disperse. In a confined space like a tunnel, when you discharge gas, you suck up the oxygen. You cause a panic reaction, which increased breathing, which ingest an ingestation of gas, causes pain and problems that cause people to pass out. So
3: Roseanne's trapped under these people. She collapsed when, again, the air had been sucked out of the room by some kind of chemical irritant. How did the police react to her?
0: The crowd and many, many people in it were begging police to help they were pointing down to Roseanne on the ground saying we have someone down she needs help please one gentleman uh, please save her please please and the reaction was silence there was no reaction and if there was any it was uh, one of the officers kicked a couple of fairly large gentlemen in the hindquarters and kicked them on top of her so she had more people land on her after that I saw Individuals who were
1: screaming for assistance to be given to her, that she was dying, please save a life, those kinds of comments. I saw one individual who was struck with a baton and bleeding, who was screaming for help to be rendered to her.
0: And nothing was forthcoming from law enforcement. The crowd was desperate. It's not fun to watch somebody die. And they knew she was in mortal peril. And and when their entreaties were ignored, it turned to anger
3: now we have this video footage of roseanne boyland being beaten by police at what stage did this take place
0: well she had been down possibly five minutes uh, and there was a battle going on at the the front of the police line because people were appeared to be trying to protect her and one of the officers who was just new up to the front of the line she had just come up she attacked one of the protesters, or she struck him, I shouldn't, uh, in the arm and struck him again and missed. And then, inexplicably, she turned her physical assault on Roseanne Boyland, who was, had been unconscious for some time.
1: In analyzing the film, I saw a police officer from DC Metro with a stick, that was a walking stick, strike a downed Roseanne Boyland three times. I was horrified twice in the head and once in the chest. We don't train officers to hit people in the head with a blunt object. It's to be avoided. We teach other targets, arms, legs, things like that. Moreover, we don't teach officers are not trained to strike a downed person. My conclusion in reviewing the officer's behavior was that they were untrained, they were not properly equipped, they were not properly commanded and supervised and that they did a reactive, fear-struck or anger-struck tactics where they punished people rather than arresting or dispersing them. It is definitely a crime that was committed by Officer Morris when she struck a down person. What she should have done is again, handcuffed the individual and rendered first aid. Yes, it's assault under color of authority with intent to do great bodily harm. She was seriously attempting to injure Roseanne Boylan by striking her
0: when she was in a down position and unconscious. The officer tried to continue, but she was uh, swinging so hard, the stick flew out of her hand, so she had lost her weapon. And then a colleague of hers behind her pulled her back into the Capitol itself. And the entreaties for Roseanne continued, a gentleman stepped up, was holding a medical crutch, an aluminum crutch, to basically block police. He started out his role in this by asking people to pray. And you can see this on video. He turns around and he's shouting at people to stop and pray because he thought people were dying. And indeed, that's what turned out to be the case. In a short while after that, he is at the front line. This crutch just flies in from off camera, lands at his feet. So he ended up picking that up. He said, I'd try to make myself as big as possible to be a barrier between the police and the crowd. And as he did this, some of the bystanders pulled Roseanne down the steps and started CPR. I mean, he's charged with uh, with multiple uh, counts, but in the media and even in his own fam- extended family, uh, he got pretty widespread condemnation. You know, he was labeled as as a... You know, an insurrectionist uh, in that he was assaulting the police. You can look at that video and you can draw other conclusions, but his input was key. He was widely condemned. Short time after Luke Coffey held the crutch up and the bystanders tried doing CPR. They picked her up and set her down right in front of the police. You watch the video and it almost seemed to be like, here is a person in need of help, help her. And uh, eventually an officer did step forward and grabbed her by the foot. But they they dragged her out and it reminded me of deer hunting. You drag out a, a deer carcass and, you know, her arms went up over her head, she lost a good bit of her clothing in this process, uh, but they pulled her into the Capitol. Then she did receive emergency care, and I think heroic care. The officers that were inside didn't hesitate. Unfortunately, we're pretty sure she was deceased by that time, but that did give that family great comfort to see that not all the officers were indifferent to what was going on with her.
4: Imagine if the American people actually saw just what happened to Roseanne Boylan, And these officers who keep portraying themselves as heroes that day, when they were the villains, and I've said this over and over, the people who acted most violently on January 6th, Capitol and DC Metro Police. People don't want to hear that. I think that's why you have so many men who are at the mouth of that tunnel trying to protect her and others who are on the ground, others who are being beaten by police officers. That's why you have so many of those men under pre-trial detention orders trying to torture them into plea deals because they don't want trials and they don't want the evidence of what happened in that tunnel to come out at trial. And so I think that's why you've got at least six or seven men who were there who were also, who were pitting police officers. I mean, I'm not, that is a fact. But when you see law enforcement, when you see thugs disguised as police officers, you're not, you can defend yourself and others around you. And the fact that even the video that most of the public and certainly the media has seen, that they have not questioned why those police officers did not stop what they were doing, clear an area, and attempt to resuscitate her, help her, or get her out of that crowd, um, that they dragged her back through the tunnel uh, and I've heard descriptions of what she looked like being dragged through that tunnel. Again, that's why they don't want the surveillance video released, right? I we mean, have thousands of hours of it.
0: The DC medical examiner ruled it was accidental and ascribed it to, to amphetamine intoxication. She had, had a prescription for Adderall for uh, ADHD, which she had been on for probably 10 years. It was a drug she was certainly used to and there was no indication she had any distress up until the point she fell but that was his finding and the, the family the Boylan family immediately uh, felt they needed to challenge that and they did hire their own pathologist to review the autopsy and that person came to came to a different conclusion and said that uh, amphetamine intoxication was clearly not the reason for her death and seemed to acknowledge that the circumstances she was in with the crowd and being crushed and this violence going on around her and, uh, and pepper gel just dripping from on high uh, and she's probably inhaling some of this stuff, that those could have been very easily aggravating factors.
3: Video footage of protesters fighting with police at the doors of the Capitol building have been among the more common scenes used by media outlets trying to paint the protesters as violent. Yet the full context of that scene is often left out. When the video evidence is shown in its full context, it's clear the crowd is trying to rescue Roseanne Boyland as police beat her unconscious body. To get the deeper context of the crowd and what took place, we met with Luke Coffey, the man who pushed the police back using a crutch, which then allowed other protesters to pull Roseanne from the tunnel.
9: I was walking back to the hotel and I was approached by three different men, kind of younger guys, that were running away from the Capitol and were basically telling uh, people that we need patriots at the Capitol. There are people dying inside. We need patriots. But it was, I thought it was strange because they were running away from the Capitol and we were still at least a mile probably away. I was prodded at that point by the Lord really to I wanted to go up there to the front and try to stop the chaos and confusion and and Whatever was going on. I didn't know. I didn't know anything at this point. So initially when they approached me it was It was uh, I I felt it would just it stood out as a very strange occurrence that they were um, Trying to get people to go up there and why were they running away from it? It was it was bizarre really And I had a a friend that is, uh, I would consider a conspiracy theorist by nature. And he warned me that there could be a false flag incident that day, be very careful. And that's immediately what I thought that these gentlemen were trying to escalate, provocateurs that were working to get people up there. I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, go up to the front and pray. And it was very clear voice. I think there are three voices in our head, our own, the Holy Spirit if you know Jesus and demonic spirits that can influence you. I know it was not my own voice and it was the Lord that very much told me and I felt it was a prodding in my heart to go up there regardless of the risk and just pray and, and pray for peace. As I was walking up there it did, I felt like there were saints you know, that were making eye contact, going out of their way to make eye contact with me. And this is a crowd of 20 to 30,000 people, but it was certain people that were just still and peaceful and just making, they'd give me a little nod or just make eye contact with me. And you know, the eyes of the window of the soul and it was something incredible that really has stood out um, to me and I haven't told a lot of people. It was an overcast day for the most part, but the clouds opened up and I did see these strips of paper coming down, they were verses that were encouraged me to continue on, and I don't think other people saw them, and I know I wasn't hallucinating. Um, but it was prodding me to continue on. And uh, and again, people can think I'm nuts, but until you experience these things, uh, you, you may be a doubter. So when I saw the, the verses coming down, it only, solidified what God had told me to go up there. There were, at one point, several points, at, at several points they were, the crowd was out there singing Amazing Grace. It was a picturesque experience that was, I felt like God gave me a glimpse of uh, heaven in this chaos and confusion that was going around, was this beautiful peaceful thing happening, which uh, which I, I know was a gift and and uh it was truly incredible and and that's what led me to to go up to the uh west side terrace when i went up there they started deploying the tear gas people started falling backwards on top of each other and were trying to get away because they couldn't breathe from the tear gas i saw multiple women that i tried to help that were on the bottom of three to four people piled deep and i was with no success was able to pull them out. So, at that point, I went to the crowd and was saying, we gotta stop this, we gotta pray. Roseanne was one of the people I saw up at the top of the steps that I was trying to help out, along with several other women that were underneath and people were screaming out that they couldn't breathe. And it was very traumatic. The gas made everybody freak out and and cause more chaos. And uh, so everyone had fallen on top of each other. And so I went up to the front telling them, everyone stop and pray, because I really believed people were gonna die. I thought people were gonna perish underneath that, that crowd because it was just jam packed. People crying out maybe for their last breaths. At that point is where I did hear the voice of the Lord say, Luke, go stand in the gap. And uh, and at the same around the same time, these three other guys were talking about that we need to do something so this doesn't happen again. So this so to de-escalate it to to prevent it from happening again. A couple of these guys were like, I, I don't want to risk going up there, and and one said I got my family to think of, and I said I'm single, I'll go up there and and uh so i tried to walk as peacefully and slowly as i could um and go right up to the line of of police and i didn't know how many there were i did see that they were swinging and it was violent and there were people on both sides swinging and so i said stop immediately stop guys we're all americans stop i was immediately sprayed with pepper spray directly to my face and was being hit as well so i couldn't see well obviously but i looked down and happened to see a crutch that I guess had just flown up there and landed at my feet and so I was prompted to pick it up and put it over my head. The most peaceful thing I could do is make myself big and try to make a wall between both parties. I don't know if it's audible in the recordings, but I said, in in the name of Jesus, Lord, please stop this. And then I turned around and said it to the crowd, stop, everyone stop. Then I was hit in the back, which prompted me to turn around and put the crutch in a defensive manner uh, in front of me. It was a fighter, I can say it was a fight or flight response to being uh, attacked and and you know the crutch was never meant to be used in in any other way than to defend myself or peace to peacefully make a stand and then to defend myself there was a reason and it wasn't a coincidence and i do I, i don't believe in coincidences i believe they're they're fingerprints on our lives evidence of god's greater plan and so i wasn't that surprised that that's where roseanne was um and I, I just wish more could have been done to save her life. One of the biggest crossroad moments of my life was first experiencing getting hit by a car with the love of my life over my shoulder and uh, her perishing that evening. What I learned from that experience is that God is the author of our lives. He is the great uh, director. He is, uh, He is in control. He's sovereign. He's providential and god used what was the my worst nightmare to show to really show up and in, in, in my life and so it was the that was the hard, it's it's weird to say but it was the greatest moment and the worst moment in my life when i lost her so when for, to have another woman in my proximity um, is very, I don't know what, what to say about it. The FBI reached out and I immediately called him back and told him the story, just like I've told you, told him that I did have contact with the police, and, but I was very much trying to break it up. And, and even he said, Mr. Coffey, it looks like you were trying to de-escalate things. He said, you're not a suspect at this point. And for about 14 or 15 days, I was told I was not a suspect initially he said if, if they charge you anything it will be a misdemeanor disorderly conduct but he said they may not charge you at all you know it says you were it looks it looks like you were trying to de-escalate things or <clears throat> so you know 10 or 12 days later he said Mr. Coffee's not looking good for you and I said what do you mean and he goes well we've seen some new evidence and uh, we're gonna need you to uh, come in and talk to us. And I said, well, let me let my lawyer talk to you. Didn't have a lawyer at the time, but I quickly got one and uh, hired one and, and uh, who negotiated what became me turning myself in to the FBI in Dallas. I spent 45 days in a prison down here in Texas, Limestone County. I've had two plea deals come in, one of which was four to five years, pleading guilty to a felony assault with a deadly weapon, the crutch being the deadly weapon. When I met with my lawyers most recently, I was able to go to Midland, Texas where they are for several days and they had a potential plea deal that was similar to another defendant that was eight to 14 months but still plead guilty to a felony assault with a deadly weapon. I just know I feel called to fight for truth, not for just myself, but for other J6ers. The only thing they can do is kill me or put me back in prison, and I'm not scared either way. So I'm ready to do whatever God calls me, and whatever He wills it for my life. It's my absolute full intention to go to trial.
0: It's watching! One of the defense attorneys for the Oath Keepers filed a motion that identified 80, what he calls suspicious actors and material witnesses. These are people who have uh, not been arrested or charged or even identified. They're only identified by somewhat whimsical hashtags that the Sedition Hunters website assigned to them. And they were present in concentration in certain places where there was trouble, including at the, on the east side at the Columbus Doors. So he went through an uh And he gave them numbers, and you'd see when the police line was breached, the breach point included, it was almost exclusively the suspicious actors. Attorney Brad Geyer, when he filed this motion, and he watched this over months, the video, that a lot of these fellows worked in two man teams, tactical teams, and then they were also seen later up on the terrace when they were trying to get into the Columbus doors. He raised a big question, which would be exculpatory for a lot of defendants, that if there was, anything that was staged that calls a lot of things into question and so he's trying to identify those people he wants to use facial recognition using the government's own databases because these folks are not listed anywhere and there's been no explanation Uh, prosecutors have adopted a policy of just no no comment outside of court filings so uh, we have asked you know can you explain this and there has been no response obviously there will be in in responding to the motions at some point um, so we we don't know uh, and how those folks got there but it compared to people who were charged and some of them very quickly some on january 7th uh, of 2021 um, to have people unidentified and that large group that don't even have a name, much less be arrested or charged, that strikes me as very unusual. They were in various places. At the first breach point in a smaller number on the uh, the East Steps leading up to the Rotunda, a much larger group, and then there were others that were at the location where Ashley Babbitt was shot. Pretty substantial, more than 20 that we've identified. For the most part, people that have not been arrested or even identified. Some of them are listed on the FBI's Most Wanted site, uh, but we still don't know who they are.
3: One of the most suspicious individuals, one who's shown up a lot of headlines, is Ray Epps. What happened with Ray Epps?
0: We see him a lot on video from January 5th and 6th. On the night before, he was amidst the Trump supporters and appears to be encouraging people to not just go to the Capitol the next day, but to go into the Capitol.
8: Tomorrow, we need to go into the Capitol! Into the Capitol! <laughs> oh!
0: and got in some verbal sparring with some Trump supporters who were chanting, fed, 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 had him pegged as an agent because I think they knew it was an illegal thing to do, potentially. He went around that crowd encouraging people to go into the Capitol. Because of the stakes here, we've got to go into the Capitol. Uh, There were plenty of people charged that day for encouraging others to go inside the Capitol. And Ray was never arrested or charged with anything. Wait, so they're
3: going after people for entering the Capitol building, But one of the individuals who demonstrated, you know, premeditated entry to the Capitol and was encouraging others was never actually charged.
0: That obviously raised a lot of questions. And I know uh, he denied being any kind of an informant uh, working for the government. Um, But yet we see him quite a few times after that. Uh, And this was well before the president had finished speaking. At the first breach point, you know, he is seen interacting with some of the people that pushed over the barriers, and one of the men charged with the first breach, he was talking in his ear, hard to say what he was saying. He, he claims that he was telling the young man to back off, but what the fell actually did is he turned around and dumped over the, the barrier, and the group was off to the races. He was seen again at the next breach point, and again, just backed off of the front line. Uh, so he, he clearly had a presence in... The prosecutors have promised to explain and give more information about him. Uh, back in March, they they said they would do that. That hasn't happened yet, so you know it just it leaves a lot of questions and speculation uh, of what a lot of the defense attorneys are calling suspicious actors.
3: Who is this individual we're looking at in this piece of footage?
0: Well, a radio journalist from Michigan was shooting video that day at the Capitol. What he captured were two most charitably called suspicious actors, but they are dressed in such a way that led him to believe that they were government agents. And one of them, after the windows had been broken by a protester, it was encouraging people to to pull the rest of the glass out and go inside. Bobby Powell, who was the journalist that had shot it, and he has his camera rolling, he told him that would be illegal and that wouldn't be a good idea. He warned people off not to go into that window. And then he turned his camera around and he caught this agent or suspicious actor pulling a large pane of glass out, this tempered glass, it kind of folds into itself, crunch onto the ground. When he realized he was being filmed, he quickly dropped it. It seems apparent on the video that he did not want to be seen doing what what he just did. So he pulled in a protester and started blaming him. He said, what are you doing breaking that window? The poor fellow that was being accused didn't know what was going on. And then he gave him a couple of really good shoves and cocked his arm like he was going to punch him. You know, we don't know. His uh, facial image is not on any of the Sedition Hunter sites or the FBI's most wanted site. But he clearly was committing criminal damage to property uh, and he has not been charged. So, it, you know, again, it raises a question of why. Uh, you know. Have we not been able to, to discover his identity? because his face was covered, and he was wearing dark glasses. Who's the other individual captured in this footage? At the nearby Columbus doors, these giant bronze ornamental doors, we had this second suspicious actor who was holding the door open, the inside door with a wooden pole. He just stood there and had. You know, it was like a fairly thick wooden dowel holding it open, for a pretty good chunk of time. And he was also pushing people into the entryway. In fact, the journalist who shot this said he got a very strong shove at this guy was hold the line, hold the line, and was pushing people in. He probably would have been there longer, except he he got a, a dose of tear gas in his face and was put out of commission. And then we don't see him again on that video. But making it easier for people to get into the Capitol and encouraging them with a good shove again raises questions about who is this fellow.
3: In addition to this, so the guy is trying to push people through, these are captured at the same time by the same journalist. Also the individual trying to, again, opening the window up is even encouraging people to enter, I believe, as well?
0: Yes. What's he saying? Well, he, he said, why don't y'all uh, open the rest of it up? He just came out of the blue, he was off to the side or behind the journalist who was busy picking up the broken glass. I'm pretty sure that's why he wheeled his camera around, is to catch it, because while he was telling him this, uh, while the, uh, the the suspicious actor was encouraging him, he was busy pulling the glass out. You could hear it crinkling while he's saying these things. So. Um, you know, and again, it was just encouraging people to do what we're told they're not supposed to do, is trespass in the Capitol.
6: I remember hearing um, from previous rallies and other news that Antifa, previous rallies even, uh, would infiltrate and say one day they're gonna do something and they'll be dressed as Trump supporters and do something to make us look bad.
0: Before she ended up at the, the mouth of the tunnel, Uh, there was a window nearby that was being attacked with hammers. I think there was even a crowbar that was used. And one of the times that that an individual stepped up and was trying to smack at this window.
6: Everyone's yelling Antifa, but no one's stopping him. So um, I just didn't give it a second thought and I ran toward the man who was breaking out the window. And right before I make it to him, somebody else jumps up and takes him down from breaking the window. But as he does that, there's a group of probably two, at least, men that pull him off of the man that was breaking the window. As soon as I make it there, I grab the guy that was smashing the window, and I pull him down. And next thing you know, People were standing back up after we scuffled, and I'm like, we don't do that. Trump supporters, we don't do that. Then there's other people, no, we're all on the same team. I'm like, no, no, we're not. Who brings something like that to a Trump rally, let alone to break out the Capitol window? That That's not us. The second man, um, I go to reach for him, to pull him down and grab his backpack. And as I do that, two, or more men grab me and they go to pull me off of him. And I come around and I reach with my other hand and I push this man's head. And then there's this big like argument that ensues. And a man from like nowhere jumps up there with a bullhorn thing like, get her out of here, get her out of here. And there's, I felt instantly like they're gonna kill me or do something to me and and I later, Um, I'm just, like, scared.
3: Some of the biggest names we've heard when it comes to, you know, the violent groups involved in January 6th was the Oath Keepers. Uh, This is, of course, you know, one of the militias in the United States and one that's very well known. And they're really one of the highlights of the case against the Trump supporters on that day. What do we know about their case?
0: They're really the centerpiece of the prosecution on January 6th, um, accused of going there to prevent of the electoral votes by force and violence if necessary according to prosecutors Uh, but we had an incident on the east side of the Capitol that in a very dramatic way counters that narrative and that belief where they are assisting the police there was a amateur videographer from Florida who captured an officer of the US Capitol Police came out of the building out of the Columbus doors where a crowd was trying to get inside He was wearing a red Trump MAGA hat and he came down to the Oath Keepers and sought them out and said he needed help. This is all captured on video, this discussion. When he makes it clear he needs help getting officers out of the Capitol who are fearful for their safety, you can see the Oath Keepers' faces, just let's go, let's go, and so they take him and they go back up those stairs in a military stack formation and they go up to the Capitol, Columbus doors and they have to explain who they are but eventually they are let in. In a short while they come out with 16 police officers uh, clad in riot gear and they take them down the steps to join a police line outside so they went in and got them and brought them out and they formed a space in the crowd to take them down the stairs it's somewhat remarkable because the crowd one woman was hugging every one of them that came out of the building others are thanking them there wasn't any attacking uh, done on that but the oath keepers are very quick to point out that's part of their mission so many of them are actually law enforcement officers or they served in the military or they're retired uh, and that you know they were there that day doing security for various events, so it, to them it's no surprise. But it, it it paints a very different picture of the group, uh, and these same individuals uh, are charged with a seditious conspiracy. Have we seen any evidence suggesting
3: that the claims of seditious conspiracy were accurate?
0: The evidence that's been put forth by the prosecutors certainly shows that these fellows communicated with each other leading up to the day and, and on the day. Uh, phone calls, texts, things like that. The rub comes in how do you interpret that? What was in the minds of the Oath Keepers? And that's gonna, in seditious conspiracy, that's what it's going to come down to. Were they of the mindset to go there to breach the Capitol and stop the electoral votes from being counted? They will quickly say, no, we were not. Uh, we were there to do security and they did bring a pretty good sized cache of arms with them that were stored in Virginia. But they were of the belief that President Trump might enact the Insurrection Act and call up militia to counter Antifa if there was Antifa violence. And so they were prepared for that eventuality. But but they did not bring that with them to the Capitol grounds that day. No, they did not bring weapons. There were a couple of groups that went in, but both of those groups ended up assisting Capitol Police. This, uh, this incident on the stairs was just one of, uh, one of three times that day where Oath Keepers helped the police. The second major incident, uh, there was a Capitol Police officer who was guarding stairs that were going down to the lower level. And he got into a screaming match with the bystanders, protesters, uh, and it got very personal and very heated. The Oath Keepers came onto this scene just outside the rotunda and got in between the combatants and de-escalated it. Made sure the officer knew he is safe. They were gonna make sure that nobody could attack him. There were just a couple of gentlemen who were just over the top, separating them and calming them down. And then they escorted the officer to a police line where his brother officers were. Removed him from that situation. Several of the Oath Keepers who were part of that had said they are convinced that was within a few seconds of a shooting. He had an M4 rifle. There is audio footage of some of the back and forth between them, but not with the weapon. I believe he disputes that and minimizes their role in helping, but you can see that they are in between at least trying to de-escalate. It's against the narrative that has developed against the Oath Keepers. So that's two incidents. What was the third incident where they helped the police? There was an incident where they were asked to guard a broken window to keep people from coming in. And I don't think there were a large number of of Oath Keepers involved in that. As long as they were asked, they did guard that window. Uh, So those were three incidents that we know of uh, where they they lended assistance which does challenge
3: the narrative, again, that they went there with some kind of seditious intent. Capitol Police were either passively allowing people into the Capitol building or were lashing out at the crowd with sometimes extreme violence. Meanwhile, many of the suspicious actors who were key instigators of the crowd were never arrested. These facts raise serious questions over who made the calls on security that day. And more importantly, what was then-President Donald Trump's role? Cash Patel was the acting chief of staff at the Pentagon under Trump and now hosts Cash's corner with the Epoch Times. On January 6th, he was a go-between on communications with Trump and the request for security on January 6th. He was called in the January 6th committee to testify on what took place. We met with Cash in Washington to find out who made the calls on security and what happened behind closed doors at the White House. One thing everybody's wondering about January 6th Mm -hmm. is who was in charge of security that
2: day? Well, that's a great question. And the simple answer is the protection of the Capitol and members of Congress falls to law enforcement. And that is specifically the Capitol Police, Metropolitan PD, which is the Washington uh, DC police force, and the federal agencies, the FBI and DHS when called upon. And all of that can be supplemented with National Guard security, assistance if and when requested. The way it's structured at the Capitol is there's a Sergeant-at-Arms for the House and a Sergeant-at-Arms for the Senate. The Capitol Police, per their own timeline, received the authorization request from the Department of Defense, where I was Chief of Staff for National Guards, men and women, before January 6th. The Capitol Police then went to the Sergeant-at-Arms in the House and the Senate and the Chief of Police, and the decision was made, per their own timeline, that that request would be declined. The United States Supreme Court, posse comitatus, said, rightfully so, the United States military cannot be deployed domestically. Uh, That's what local law enforcement, federal law enforcement are for. But they said that this is the whole purpose behind the National Guard, who are not full-time uniformed military officials. They are doctors, lawyers, teachers, husbands, wives, parents, who live in the community and have other full-time jobs, but when called upon are activated to come into the National Guard. The Supreme Court said two things must happen. One, the president of the United States has to authorize, not order, authorize the use of the National Guard. Once that happens, step two has to happen as well before they can be deployed. And that is a request from the head of the state, the governor, in this case, Mayor Bowser, because it's Washington, D.C., or federal law enforcement needs to request the National Guard to be deployed. If those two things don't happen, then any issuance of the National Guard would be literally unconstitutional. Take you back to january 4th ish right we're in the oval office with president trump it was me the secretary of defense chairman of joint chiefs of staff chief of staff of the president of the united states and obviously president trump and maybe one or two other officials and i remember it, it was a monday morning we were talking about an extremely sensitive operation we were running overseas um, and then once we finished that topic president trump pivoted and said hey what are you guys doing you know basically for security and i'm paraphrasing here for anything that might happen on january 6th and we said well we're doing what we always do. We're getting ready, sir. And he said, "Well, if you need up to twenty thousand National Guardsmen and women, not just in Washington D.C. but anywhere in the country, you have my authorization." So, Roger that, sir. Check. We've got the Commander in Chief giving us that authorization that the law requires. So, what do we do? The Department of Defense takes that authorization and goes to Mayor Bowser, literally, and goes to the Capitol Police and says, "The President has said this many thousands of National Guardsmen and women are at your disposal." but you need to make the request because the law prohibits us from just deploying them. Mayor Bowser, in writing, pursuant to her own letter that we released from her, sent to the Department of Defense, declined to issue any more National Guards men and women, in writing on January, you know, I'm guessing now it was the 4th or the 5th. The United States Capitol Police timeline now shows definitively what we've been saying the whole time because we knew it was true, that the United States Capitol Police similarly declined. The only thing that we cared about was a chain of command and following the law at DOD. And we were informed by Mayor Bowser, who runs D.C., and by the Capitol Police, who are the federal law enforcement authority here, that no more troops would be necessary.
3: Now, on that note, is it possible they had assessed that the Capitol Police would have been enough? Because they also didn't, they really didn't put down riot police initially either. No. So they seem to have assumed that the Capitol Police, in and of itself, was enough to handle that crowd. Would the Capitol Police
2: normally be able to handle a crowd like that? Not of that size. It's just far too big. As we outlined earlier, uh, you know, what the Capitol Police's main functions are and, you know, what their abilities are. They're not the NYPD. It's not 40,000 uniformed cops um, sitting at the Capitol. That's just not the way it is. Well, the Capitol Police timeline shows that they were looking at things, and now the FBI's information has finally come out that the FBI had information about security c- concerns before January 6th. As for the rest, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and company were calling the Department of Defense, and rightfully so on that day, multiple times. And I remember vividly we were saying, well, once you tell us you want this, you know we'll turn it on because we had prepped it so so well, and we did exactly that. And then their complaint was, why aren't they here, you know, within the hour? How do you move people across America within the hour? We told you two days ago we could have been stationed here and ready to go and hit the easy button, but you said no. And then the law would not allow us to act. Then we were told these same individuals, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and Company, who, if you remember Lafayette Park, went absolutely apoplectic when the president walked across Lafayette Park with uh, a military officer with a sidearm. These same individuals on January 6th were asking where the tanks were and where the armored personnel carriers were. They wanted to turn downtown Washington, D.C. into downtown Kandahar. It's simply just not the purpose of the National Guard. And it's simply not, you wanted us to have belt-fed machine guns on top of mounted SUVs, to do what? Mow down American citizens. You, I just did. They want now the same people that were concerned about optics before January 6 were politically concerned about optics again, and they wanted that show of force. And we said we would do everything the law permitted us to do, but those weapons of of war literally would not be deployed in the streets of Washington D.C.
3: So Trump offered to provide security on January 6. If this was the case, then why did they decline to have the National Guard deployed, as Trump wanted? Why weren't riot police and better assets sent out initially? And why would they place this instead on the Capitol Police, who are not equipped or staffed to handle protests of this scale? And even beyond this, at the end of the day, why did they want weapons of war, including tanks and belt-fed machine guns, deployed against American citizens, as a way to disperse a protest. The findings raise serious questions on the very people who've given themselves positions to run the investigations. A comprehensive review of evidence suggests that Capitol Police officers flagrantly violated the law in their handling of January 6th. Many of them should face criminal charges. But what does this mean for the other charges that day? Would their behavior of the police officers constitute entrapment?
1: The definition of the crime of entrapment is in whose mind the crime occurred first. If an officer were to do something that he knew would provoke a response that would be arrestable, and if he did that act, That would be the classic definition of entrapment. And he or she would be entrapping the protester to violate the law. If an officer invited somebody into the Capitol building knowing that he was then going to charge them with trespassing, that would be entrapment, yes. From everything that I have looked at in this case, I believe that there was a conscious, um, if not stated, certainly endorsed and supported reaction on the part of uh, the the police to create a circumstance where they could use force and make arrests. Uh, And it was born out of um, um, what I would characterize as being uh, angry at the protesters for their presence there in their jurisdiction. Doing things that they didn't want them to do, being there. Not only what they were doing, but who they were. Uh, That seemed to be a theme and it seemed to be evident by their action, behavior and conduct, which was quite frankly deplorable.
3: The real story of January 6th is not the one that has been largely shown to the public. Normal protocols on a riot were not followed and many people violated laws they did not know they were violating. The most serious acts of violence were on behalf of the Capitol Police, yet the violence and at least one killing on their behalf are being ignored. But video evidence shows that many of them could stand trial for crimes on use of force and murder. All of these issues beg the question of why. January 6 is now being used politically and as a justification to create new laws on domestic terrorism. But if the foundation is false, then how can these stand? Crimes were committed on January 6, But a two-tiered justice system is not justice, and a political investigation from an aggrieved party is not a real investigation. Potential crimes on all sides need to be treated with equal weight. America needs answers on why the main instigators are not charged, who made the calls on security that day, and why. Only through a true and clear presentation of the day's incidents can the nation be assured that justice is being served. And only through this light of true justice can America begin to heal.